Hello lovely people and welcome to another episode of Quintessentially Queer. Yes. Once again I am with you, your lovely host, George Rallis, and today we have with us the lovely Aurelian Le Petite. Hello. Hey baby, how are you? I'm great, how are you, baby? I'm good, trying to battle through this fucking Amsterdam weather. But Let's not get into weather right now. Let's get into um, Aurelian's work and the whole discourse around his work, which is why he's here. But before we proceed with our interview, let's start off by creating a sort of discourse, right? A discourse of um, creation, if you may. So he continues by saying that there's a kind of poetry whose essence lies in the relation between ideal and real, and which therefore, by analogy to philosophical jargon, should be called transcendental. It begins as a satire in the absolute difference of ideal and real, of the space in between creation and conception, of when you see the meanings um, shared and shot frame by frame in front of your eyes as everyone else is actually directing your mise-en-scene. A sort of poetry, a sort of creation, of sportsmanship that requires no group effort and no ultimate goal. As everyone cheers, you look at the black and white, when the world is full of greys waiting to be attuned with the way you wish to saturate them. From tops to bottoms, you try to find your medium. In all descriptions, with the caption following through, it should describe itself though. The poetry of poetry. Aligned, simultaneous, instantaneous, instantaneous, to the words that have not yet been created. A preliminary of prophetic creativity is actually form. A restricted production in a field where nothing prospers, even if Bourdieu wants it to. Schlegel, though, said it first. A real aesthetic theory of poetry would begin with the absolute antithesis of the eternally unbridgeable gulf between art and raw beauty. What is more raw than nature, though? As a stolen Persephone, art blooms over the act of inspiration. He then continues, The independence of beauty, with the proposition that beauty is and should be distinct from truth and morality, disrupted by me, negates exactly what it is trying to do. Poetry is manufactured if all the words are thought through. Raw beauty, on the other hand, is the afterthought of a distinct emotional reality, the one that's born in vitro. Your memories are more real... Okay, edit. Your memories are as real as mine. The pain those stories cause is twofold, because the loss I feel was never mine. But moving beyond the discourse, let's be real now, huh? Malevich once said, I have overcome the lining of the colored sky. I swim in the white free abyss as infinity is beyond you. Infinity in motion, when it's conceptualized in words basically, but only words, is like capturing a fleeting non-completion of destroying any preconceived notion and expectation that we have in our attachments. This effort to unmask human existence as that place which is hidden within is when we try to point to our own sublimity, basically. Thought and imagination are the strokes of existence and sublimity. Poetry, literature, painting, and art are simply mediums in a world that's always bottoming to a verb that cannot top. Displacing ourselves in front of our own nature of absence, of consciousness, and incompletion. In that sense, then, mediality and documentation are submerged in everydayness. 
Regardless, there are those who are naive, naively anxious to glorify art by making it inaccessible and elitist. On the contrary, it is those who wish to see it collaborate with the overall work of humanity that truly encompass the sublimity of each person and of everydayness by hiding the truth of existence within their own art. The artist, then, is a person who functions as an expression of knowledge, not a creator of knowledge, but a creator, actually, of a new reality, which opens the possibility to the world of a new, wider perspective. The artist, then, uncovers the being of beings, as my daddy would say, and the art of art by adding to the existential dialogue of art being magnified and aestheticized. As Heidegger would argue, then, it is that person which knows the truth, which knows truth more so, because there is no the truth. It is he or she or them whose art overcomes human perception and places the human nature, not in this world, but in a true world, where only freedom would stroke her natural oils on the canvas, which is our mind. Artistic conception overflows our own perception and unveils the sublimity of the experience of pure being at the same time as it experiences its eternal antagonism and the evasion that it imposes. In this way, reaching finally versatility, the realization of such technique, by striking us as a blow on the head, disarming our own perception and making apprehension simply impossible. It is only through artistic expression then that one goes out of the confines of the existential rigor that our sublime nature inflicts upon us. Art, in this case, tries to answer the questions which we set in regards to our own being. The true answer of existence is always the question's vitality, though. The point, my friends, is not to provide an answer to existence or a relief to its burden, but to simply indicate its complexity and its portrayal through it as the canvas will always be proceeding our efforts to inhabit empty space. This inexplicability and disarming nudity of existence is the reason why this question should always remain a rhetoric one, and why my text, as abstract and as obscure as your effort to actually understand it while listening to me. In the same way, we should remain the brushes and strokes on the canvas that humanity is exercised on, being nothing more than a cosmic giggle in the breath of a universal creation. Yes. Oh my God, that was so deep, right? Right. I mean, I don't usually go so intense, but I feel that the situation kind of like, you know what I mean, um, held it like uh, rightfully so to these standards. So the first song that we opened our podcast was Blind Trust by Cabaret Nocturna. And now let's go to one of my selections, which is Sunglasses at Night by Corey Hart. Wait. <laughs> 
so that was sunglasses at night the anthem of every pretentious bitch that wears sunglasses inside at night <laughs> pretty much <laughs> hello Relian hello how are you honey I'm great <laughs> great selection <laughs> thank you so much I try my best really oh my god I didn't give you a proper introduction what am I saying ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between welcome for the first time to quintessentially queer. This is how we introduce people here. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> how are you, honey? Welcome to the studio. I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. So, introduce yourself a little bit to those that don't already know you. Who is Aurelian and what is your um, thing? Besides, I mean, you're an artist, evidently, as most people would know you through. Uh, but tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay, so um, to just introduce myself briefly, I would say that... Uh, I'm a mix of um, different, uh, let's say, social and um, sports background. Uh, mm-hmm. I come from a family that uh, was really into sports, and uh, it has been uh, basically my uh, my life since a very young age. So let's say sports from an aesthetical level, but as well as uh, let's say daily uh, leitmotiv or uh, diet uh, schedule, uh, everything. Um, shaped um, who I am, so it's a very strong base. And um, yeah, on top of that, uh, with sports, let's say I, I have been having a lot of influence from music, mm-hmm. uh, especially classical music. I used mm-hmm. to play viola for uh, quite a while. So it's a mix of uh, sports, classical music, and I used to be a huge fan of archaeology, geology, and paleontologists. Oh, wow. So I wanted to be the three at the same time when I was a kid, <laughs> uh, but uh, didn't succeed. So today uh, I'm basically working with this different field of research uh, for my artistic practice. Nice. Super cool. Yeah, actually, when you told me uh, about your sportsmanship background in a way that made complete sense, uh, to be honest, because you can see that like uh, in all of your art, uh, to be quite honest, in all of your like performances and like sculptures. But before we get into your actual art, how long have you been living in Amsterdam, actually? So basically, I arrived in Amsterdam in uh, 2015. And oh, it's been five years already. Five years already, exactly. Okay, cool. And uh, at first, I wasn't supposed to go to Amsterdam. Uh, Where were you supposed to go? I was supposed to go back to Shanghai. Oh, you were in Shanghai? I was living in Shanghai and I had to come back to France because I had to defend my first thesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, um, I did it in uh, exhibition design, mm-hmm. first master degree. So I was writing basically about, um, let's say, the behavior that is created by yeah. uh, new technologies. And um, yeah, so my thesis director, she was also thesis director at uh, this dirtier department at the Sandberg Institute. Oh, wow, cool. And she was like, yeah, why don't you just try to expand your practice in a more, let's say, visual art perspective? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you will see afterwards if you want to go back to Shanghai or not. So that's basically how I ended up in Amsterdam. Oh, wow, cool. How was Shanghai? Um, Intense. I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) It was very intense, but uh, extremely interesting also in terms of... uh, um, great learning regarding uh, design practices. And uh, I also understood that I couldn't be a designer Mm -hmm. um, because I don't want to only execute. I also want to be the author of my own uh, stuff. Yeah. 
Nice. Okay. And what um what 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 led you into kind of like staying in Amsterdam in retrospect? Was it Sunberg Institute or uh, I don't know, did you see something in the city? How how was it like let's say a defining factor in you actually staying here for five years? Mm, I would say for me Amsterdam was really this openness. Okay. So it's something that I could not experience in France or that I could experience in uh, in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. It was more okay. I was able to um, experiment, uh, lose myself, uh, find myself again. Also study, um, meet a lots of different people. And uh, at first, I just wanted to stay two years at mm-hmm. uh, in Amsterdam at the Sandberg Institute at the Research Department and just leave. Mm-hmm. Because I had other plan, but then um, I just let myself follow the flow, and yeah, uh, yeah. And then I started to work for Sandberg Institute while I was a student. Nice until uh, last May. Work. Mm. I mean, the reason um, I started the podcast like this actually with this type of introduction um, is uh, I usually try to keep it super casual uh, and very like you know what I mean linear. Let's say. But uh, also the way we met was actually weird because um, so basically, all right, let me give this introduction to this. So Heidegger, right, <laughs> going back to him <laughs> always, has the division of self-perception between narrative and discourse. Narrative being the moment to moment kind of like uh, emotional response that you have and not even a response because those emotions are being created. And then later on, you put them into your discourse when you once you kind of like remove yourself from that situation. Discourse being, let's say, this sense of self that we have, who George is, who Aurelian is, like, uh, whatever. So, actually, how we met is that, like, so many people told me that we, like, have to meet because we like the same things, we like philosophy, the way we talk, like, la, 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 you know what I mean? I guess we're both pretentious that way. (laughs) 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 So, it's kind of like people, while they were kind of, like, experiencing both of us, they saw where discourse kind of, like, led us intellectually, I guess. Or as knowledge, which was like super interesting for me to see, to be honest. Because actually, when we actually met the first time, you were one of the very few people that didn't actually have to skip steps out of the way, I think. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> I was just ranting about Heidegger for like two hours and like, you got it. So I was like, oh, now I get it. But in the same way, um, it's really interesting to see how your own narrative as a, a person anyway shaped also your art and you know what I mean brought you to Amsterdam you know what I mean and and then created the discourse around it you know what I mean because I feel that like if you take all of your like artworks and all of your like steps anyway you see the fact that you come from like a more athletic background you see the whole like Shanghai elements if you ask me in terms of the neon lights and all that or at least that's how I read it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's super interesting to see um, how your art was created as a discourse through your own narrative. But before we get into the details, how were you led into art, actually? Uh, what what like what led you to that point? You know what I mean? Mm, as a kid, I was already um, creative. And uh, I remember it's my mother that gave me the, the taste of art. Mm-hmm. Basically, sometimes when my, I mean, my father was always away for playing because uh, my parents, they are sports champions. So oh, wow, okay. used to be. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I seen, I have seen a lot of different gymnasium in Europe when mm-hmm. I was a kid already. So we traveled a lot, but um, yeah, for me, it was a bit boring. So at some point, my mom started to make me uh, discover a different museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially in Europe, and we started to go to exhibition together. And that's how I got this, uh, 
this kick and this uh, this love for for art in general, especially classical art, because my mom is a huge fan. Yeah, so that's how I got introduced to it, <laughs> and um, yeah, then uh, through music and um, also. I don't know. My grandmother also, she was uh, very into creative stuff. So that's a bit how I discovered it. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's say I was always struggling between what um, my parents wanted me to do mm -hmm. um, and uh, what I really wanted to do for myself. And let's say that at some point when I was training as a 400 meter hurdler, um, I had to quit everything. I also came out, which was a very painful experience. And art for me was this moment and this um, kind of statement where I was, okay, I'm taking care of myself and I'm going to do the thing I want to do mm -hmm. by myself, for myself. So, mm -hmm. yeah, art was this moment of, okay, taking control um, over, what, yeah, over what I wanted to do. It's so. super nice. That's very interesting to hear, actually. Because um, usually, I mean... Usually most people like do art for the exact opposite way, you know, not to lose control, but kind of like to like let go, let's say, rather than actually control who they are. You know what I mean? Yeah, because basically as a kid, I never had very much the control of who I was because of my dad. Every time, you know, I was going to sports hall or anywhere, everybody yeah. was asking me, so uh, you are going to be like your dad. Okay, so uh, which team do you want to play? Which position oh, yeah. in the <laughs> yeah, yeah, playground yeah, yeah. do you want to play? So yeah. I constantly... I, constant, I constantly felt like I had to justify mm -hmm. my position and I was always somehow in, in, in the shadow of my dad yeah. and also the legacy of the family mm -hmm. and also I'm the first boy, the last one to hold the name. So all of this patriarchal oh, yeah. pressure, oh, yeah, all of this yeah, yeah. bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to go through it even on the playground. So to me, art was this moment where I, where, where I was emancipating myself yeah. finally from the family name um, from sports in general and mm -hmm. yeah, reclaiming uh, the beginning of a journey into yeah, looking for my own identity. Super interesting, actually. Um, like I that resonates a lot with me because I look like my dad so much, like literally. And growing up, everyone was like telling me all the time, like, "Oh, you're you look you're the same as your dad," because we actually both are. We actually are the same, like my dad. Not gonna lie, because he's like also, I guess smart and like likes you know what i mean philosophy and like all this shit um but exactly because of that we're butting heads so much and also i'm cool as fuck like so that was kind of like my own way of being like nope i am not <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> but then growing up i realized it now especially like um last when we were fighting so much like but then like after a while like uh last year we were talking for like three and a half hours decontextualizing and like deconstructing a whole like western economic system and i was like holy shit i really am like my dad you know what i mean on that note but then like i, I really am not on every other level and um basically like with this juxtaposition right between the athletic and the art artistic disposition um that you hold so close i guess and um, what's interesting about it, at least to me, is not the, that they're not polar opposites. You know what I mean? I wouldn't call them opposites per se, because they're both embodied. If you actually are going into performance or like sculpture is like the two most embodied forms of art after fashion, I guess. You know what I mean? Uh, which you wear all the time. So it's kind of like, I don't know, it's like your whole narrative is being embodied into a discourse that is artistic, which is very interesting, if you ask me. But what was it like 
growing up queer and uh, as an artist in France, when did you slowly start, um, you know? That was a struggle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that was such a struggle. I mean, you know, um, I always like, you know, I was uh, doing my own things and reading a lot of books. And uh, as I uh, quickly introduced, I was a huge fan of um, archaeology, volcanology and geology. So I was mm -hmm. the kind of kid that, you know, collected stones and fossils and was really into uh, reading uh, Greek mytholo mythology, Nordic mythology. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I never really felt like, I don't know, people were kind of always putting me on the side because I was embodying kind of both a kind of, I don't know, different, let's say, side of my personality didn't fit with the group of people I was uh, evolving in at school. Yeah. And, you know, kids between each other, they can be... Uh, Very cruel. Tough. Exactly. Oh, my God. So let's say I found a way, especially through athletics, actually, mm -hmm. because it was the first moment where I was starting to, let's say, channel my own uh, identity by not doing the same sport as my dad. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it was an individual sport. Um, and I used that as a kind of... Um, a space to ventilate and also to uh, express all of the frustration through physical activity. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, art and uh, music came after, I mean, yeah, it came quite young still, but afterwards. And uh, it helped me basically to, to escape mm -hmm. somehow. Yeah. To escape because being a queer or gay kid uh, in France, it's, uh, you know, it's quite a conservative country, especially... Uh, I was born in Lyon, but I grew up in the in the south suburb of uh, Paris, mm -hmm. and then I uh, finished the rest of my uh, childhood in the French Alps, mm -hmm. uh, next to Switzerland. Uh, I, it's not the most open places <laughs> in France, yeah. and you know it's very uh, always the same type of people and uh, the same time the same type of uh, um, let's say mindset. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, also as a kid, uh, I had the chance to be very privileged in terms of uh, social background. But uh, yeah, I mean, finding a place where everything is established and everything is within a structure um, is quite difficult somehow. Yeah. So basically this moment going to, to Shanghai was this first escape and this first understanding that, ah, okay, maybe my place is actually not in France. Yeah. And when I came back and I had my diploma from my uh, master degree, I got extremely pissed off because during my um, jury, uh, one of the people from my jury was this project designer. Mm -hmm. And he told me that basically I couldn't choose. Uh, no, I had to choose, sorry, between being an artist or a designer while I wanted to be both, you know? Okay. So it's as if, you know, you need to choose, you know, between black and white, and I wanted to have everything. Yeah, so that's <laughs> it. And uh, France is very much about uh, historicism and uh, very classical ways of uh, thinking. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's also how I ended up in Amsterdam, because it was also for me a chance to restart a new beginning, kind of. That's it, that's it, honey. So, yeah. Okay, before we get into your art, since he will not be like his father, let's go uh, to Sexual Sportswear by Sébastien Tellier. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sebastian work. <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, so um, let's get into your art, though. Let's go into a little bit more specific. Tell me a little bit about it. How would you describe it? I, I, I hate asking this question, but kind of like just to have something to start off, you know, so I don't just assume things. How would you describe it, if you would? And if so, uh, how would that be? Um, that's a very good question. Let's say that um, my art is about... Um, um, it's multimedia, so it's not only using uh, sculpture or installation or performance, but uh, it's uh, a mutation of um, yeah, different kind of medium. And um, I would say I'm trying to express and uh, show vulnerability through my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I'm trying to understand um, and reflect on uh, toxic masculinity, especially toxic masculinity related in uh, in sports and um, also in art. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important because uh, it's something that uh, I have experienced personally not only once but a couple of times actually, mm-hmm. uh, which was not only you know on the playground as a gay queer kid, but also. Uh, when I started to study art, when I went to the big city, and uh, also when I was in Shanghai, and also in Amsterdam, you know. Oh my god, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and uh, actually, you know, before, I know that sports could be a fetish, but it's really in Amsterdam that I discovered the full sports gear yeah. fetish thing. And I was like, it's funny because when I look at this dude, you know, it's as, I mean, when I look at these people that really have a thing for it, it reminds me, you know, when I was just going out of the of the locker room, but like uh, with nothing sexual related at all. <laughs> so it's it's really interesting for me to see how, you know, um, a culture can be, uh, let's say, sexualized. Oh yes, and also objectified, and that's also what I'm I'm talking in in my work is the objectification and sexualization of uh, sports bodies, mm-hmm. and, uh, bodies in general, and. Um, that's the thing, like, I mean, fetishization of anything, uh, if you ask me, it's fine as long as there's consent, because, I mean, it's a different thing fetishizing socks. It's a different thing, for example, fetishizing trans bodies, like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's a whole other, like, level. Mm. Um, but, okay, super nice to see that point of view, actually. I've never thought of, like, yeah. Because that. imagine, like, basically, when I look at my dad, and when you look at the bodies of uh-huh. uh, sports professional in the 90s, and when you look at the bodies that uh, are today in 2020, it's completely different. Yeah. Basically, with this development of, uh, you know, um, going to the gym, working out, it's as if the whole body is erected constantly because yeah. the muscles are, uh, you know, visible and yeah. uh, as if they are uh, tense constantly. Yeah. So it's as if the whole body is constantly in erection somehow. Yeah, 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 so yeah. It's, yeah, I that I don't know. I'm not a gym. I'm not a gym bunny. I'm not a gym bunny. Either. Fuck that. Fuck I really don't like shit. that. No, <laughs> fuck that shit. Um, but what are your inspirations, if you have any? Kind of like I don't know. Like for me, for example, it would be um, Heidegger, Butler, the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover, and Blue by Derek Jarman. Like these are the four, you know, people and movies that really encapsulated my personality and my work. Let's say in how I think. More or less. Do you have any of those? Like, um, you know. Mm, yeah, actually, I'm really, I, I, I really, I really appreciate and I, uh, and I really like um, 
design from Japan. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is this, 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 uh, this designer, Charlotte Perriand. Mm -hmm. That is a French designer, but that uh, lived in Japan. And when uh, basically she started to be there, she made all of this mix uh, and kind of fusion, French-Japanese fusion mm -hmm. in terms of design that is absolutely beautiful. So I would say Japanese design, especially related to Charlotte Perriand, uh, I'm in love with the work of Rebecca Horn. Rebecca Horn is this German artist that uh, made uh, prothesis. Mm -hmm. And uh, she also performed a lot with her own prothesis. And actually mm -hmm. what I find interesting is that she got sick uh, out of her artistic process. Oh, because she wasn't protecting herself while uh, you know, building up the prothesis with um, uh, resin, uh, silicone, mm -hmm. other toxic uh, elements. Uh, mm -hmm. She had to, to stop at some point mm -hmm. because she, yeah, she got damaged by, by it. Um, I'm interested also by uh, science fiction. Yeah, I love science <laughs> fiction. Um, and uh, yeah, archaeology and geology. Nice. I would say that would be the 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 big yeah the big inspirations. I would say. Yeah. This it's very interesting that you bring all this up actually, because um, even with uh, your injury, mm. what I from your like uh, thesis book. Mm. And uh, seeing all your work, that just to me, and I know that I've said this already like seven times, but kind of like the biggest um, theme that I can trace in all of your works, because I don't feel there's something that's stable in all of them, to be honest. Even though it's always continuing, I wouldn't say that, you know what I mean, you have feathers in all of them or like something like that beyond embodiment uh, that takes different um, forms each time. So it's kind of like having object placement basically being taken over by conceptual placement, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, even though you do work with objects, but it's not the, the object itself that's the main focus, I feel, but kind of like the process behind it that led it to that moment in time that until it transmutates into something else in a later work that I find super interesting. And one of the quotes that I found responding to this from your um, book was, Having to keep the face and following the rules of a patriarchal family, I remolded and merged all of those frustrations as strengths, which I feel resonates with a lot of queer kids. And, well, I don't want to say queer because I feel that's also like a, a big box. You know what I mean? I feel there's a lot, everyone goes through a um, thing that, they don't really re that doesn't really resonate with them, with their family, and not just necessarily queer kids, but I feel that's more, you know. Um, and then as a response to that, from Schiller, he says that if man is ever to solve that problem of politics, in practice, he will have to approach it through the problem of the aesthetic, because it is only through beauty that man makes his way to freedom, which I could not agree more. And I feel also corresponds quite well with your work in general. And let's take the last one um, as an example. Like in Marine Terrain, you had a, a residency there, right? I had a residency with uh, an exhibition there. Yeah, so I feel that like uh, you did like a what do you call it like the boxing thing. Mm -hmm. What do you call it? Ah, yeah, uh, punching bag. A punching bag, bravo! That was really cool. That was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and and just these like questions of being bound and kind of like changing an object that is so stable. Mm. You know what I mean? But actually making it cool is like a very like, I don't know, interesting way of looking at object placement, I guess, and using concepts to change that. Mm. 
I mean, also, you know, my practice is a lot related to recycling mm -hmm. um, my own stuff and uh, also recycling um, sculpture that I have been making uh, in the past. So it's as if, let's say, I, I'm, I'm not only making sculpture, I'm making, let's say, performative sculpture because yes. it's constantly evolving, it's constantly in mutation. Uh, as my way of thinking, as my uh, as the way I go through life in general. Mm -hmm. So what was interesting in uh, at Marino Terrain, um, I am basically made this uh, punching bag because I was um, slightly frustrated after an experience I had there. Basically, <laughs> I experienced um, yeah toxic masculinity at uh, at its best. Yeah, and um, yeah, basically. I was making some, uh, so I was preparing the exhibition. It was end of August, beginning of September. I was doing some uh, accrochage uh, and uh, hanging stuff in um, in this uh, fitness garden mm -hmm. at Marine Terrain. And uh, yeah, I was making some tryouts and I just, you know, let it be for the night. And mm -hmm. when I came back the first night, basically everything was taken down. Taken down. Oh man. And also the, the ropes and it's ropes that I used in the previous work uh, yeah. a couple of years before. So, you know, I was like, oh, okay, maybe it's just a challenge, you know, my sports background, challenge. <laughs> so I was like, okay, then I'm going to attach it in different ways. So I decided to attach it somewhere else, still within the um, yeah. this fitness garden, but in different ways. And then the next day, the pieces were gone. And what I understood is that, um, yeah, I have been censored and removed yeah. because I've been considered as an intruder. And even though they could see me working there every single day, mm -hmm. nobody came to tell me, hey, I don't like your thing or hey, um, this, uh, you shouldn't put it there or whatever, Ugh. you know? So this experience basically uh, completely changed my perception mm -hmm. of the space and also the way I wanted to show my work because mainly my work is meant to be exhibited in indoor, yeah. not outdoor. So, yeah, I still had this hope as well that it would come back. Mm -hmm. So this punching uh, bag was really this sculpture that we can hit and kick. Yeah. And I actually donated this piece to this kickboxing uh, club oh, that wow. uh, is at Marino Terrain. Nice. So it's a kind of, uh, you know, uh, little, uh, <laughs> little jinx because, uh, yeah, if, uh, even though my pieces are not there anymore, Maybe from time to time they will put the punching bag out. Uh -huh. so maybe the dude will see like, hey, I'm yeah. still there. Ah, yes. And you, you put a sculpture in the thing, right? Yeah, at the end, the way I did it, I wanted to basically show uh, this experience, but uh, from another perspective. So I decided mm -hmm. to, to put it in a very totemic way on top of this uh, structure. Yes. So it looked, you know, um, these old boats. Um, that have this uh, sirena figure. Oh, nice. You know, so that's yeah, yeah, a bit yeah. the thing. And also, it's a mold that I made uh, in plaster. And the inside of the mold is empty, and it's basically representing a technical sport object. Mm -hmm. So it's as if you talk about, uh, let's say, metaphorically, uh, about the derma, about the skin. Mm -hmm. You know, what's and how people look at uh, the outside layer. Mm -hmm. Uh, basically how you present yourself to society, how yeah. is your body, and uh, yeah, yeah. very much related to this idea of, you know, training yourself, but do you train for the sake of, you know, being healthy, or do you train because... You want to be hot. Like, exactly, yeah, or you want yeah, to yeah. fit a certain standards. Yeah. I don't know, babe, the only six-pack I'm interested in is beer, so... <laughs> <laughs> I prefer chocolate. Yeah, or that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, 
I find that super interesting actually. And when I saw you taking it down, like uh, I've seen pictures that I realized that you had a sculpture in the actual thing. So it's kind of like, I don't know, it's like, um, you know, this like super vegan level six vegan, like of taking a crystal and charging it by the side of the river. Mm. Like, you know what I mean? So it felt a bit kind of like, the artwork was getting stronger by the charging of people kind of like punching it somehow because mm. they didn't know that it was there in the first place. Because um, I feel this, when I mean by, what I mean by object placement, it's placing different things, let's say, within a specific discourse. So in the same way, uh, let's say, if we all agree that language is poetry, right, we would use language in a much different way than we use it now. Because uh, we don't see it right now as something that is hurtful or something with meaning inside it. We just see it as, as things that we produce and recite. Uh, well, if you say, if I give you the sentence, I left the chocolates for you in the freezer, and it's just, a, it's just a sentence, you don't really think about it. You're like, yep, I have chocolates in the freezer. But if I tell you this is a poem, it's going to start, you know, the analysis of the discursal analysis of oh, the freezer is your heart and the chocolate is the, like, whatever, you know? So in the same way, I feel that um, having an artwork placed inside something that is an artwork in itself, but then also making all of that functional, it's kind of like you're playing with people's expectations of what art would be and how it is embodied and how it is placed within a space. Because if you had the punching bag in an exhibition space, I don't think there would be anyone to go and actually punch it. No, 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 no. they wouldn't do that. No. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so um, it's this um, flirtation with the idea of, like, let's say, qualitative experimentation that uh, I find super interesting in your work. And not only of gender, huh, but also of expectation in general, I think is super cool. And one thing that I was reading, and I was like, yes, bitch, <laughs> is where you used lab dance. As a <laughs> that was amazing. I was like an awkward state of becoming from the audience, actually. And then bringing, I don't know, questions out like surveillance, let's say with the phone you had, yeah. Or like targeting who you're going to go to. And then basically questioning what virility is and how you can use that. And that was like the first, I don't know if that was the first artwork that you, or that, whatever. That was the first uh, ever work I made in Amsterdam. Okay, actually, so. cool. But it, at least it was the first in your book. And then the last one now in Marine Terrain that I know of, at least, I feel you're still questioning the exact same things, mm -hmm. you know? So that was a very nice, um, you know? Yeah, I see what you mean. So tell me a little bit about those issues and how do they correlate? to you as an artist, let's say. Let's say the issues, if I want to make it a bit more specific, of, let's say, awkwardness, virility, surveillance, and documentation, I guess, if you mm. want to go that route, or anything, actually. Okay. Um, okay, very good question. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Mm, wow. Um, <laughs> no, actually, I just would like to take first the, the term of uh, flirtation. Uh -huh. Actually, I find it super interesting because I have always trying to, let's say, flirt in a way with yeah. the audience uh, but uh, the way I flirt is very awkward <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's maybe why you know um, so you know it was interesting also for me this uh, what happened at Marina Terrain because it also made me understand and realize that you know uh, even though you consider it as art and even though for you it's uh, charged uh, emotionally, mm -hmm. uh, people will not respond to it uh, the way you expect. So it's yeah. also this step in your work. How do you let go? And um, yeah, especially 
it's related to the question of documentation that I have always been interested about because um, the way I work, I basically document the whole process mm -hmm. uh, and I document it online through uh, different uh, social platforms. Um, this exhibition moment is just a moment of pause. It's mm -hmm. as if you stop breathing. And then there is still uh, this post um, process or mm -hmm. this post production time uh, where you fix the mold or you reflect on it or you just uh, let your body rest emotionally, mm -hmm. physically. Um, this question of documentation was important, especially during my uh, years of study at Sandberg Institute. Um, I tried, <laughs> I tried to create a whole writing system, okay. uh, and I tried to create my own language and my own. Yeah, I mean, I was crazy. I was, I was inspired by Rudolf von Laban that created this um, writing system uh, mm -hmm. that is absolutely beautiful and it's, that is extremely precise. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted something that was based, a bit like a partition tune somehow, mm -hmm. but a partition tune that is meant for movement or that is meant for uh, experiences. Mm -hmm. So how do you translate from, let's say, physical experience into uh, a notation that is basically uh, a 2D mm -hmm. uh, relationship? So, yeah, because... I started to be interested in the history of performance, uh, especially in the visual art field. And what I have been bothered with is that it's always pictures or videos. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you take a picture of a performance or, a fan or an action, it's always very sacralized oh, and yes. it's always very, sometimes the picture takes more space than the performance in oh, itself. Yes. And when you look at, and when you watch the video, then the video you feel like, oh shit, actually it's, not that good. So, yeah, that uh, I, I wanted basically to question the history of performance and try to, yeah, create something different, something that would uh, um, fit also my mm -hmm. practice and uh, something that I could decline and yeah. in constant mutation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Super cool. Yeah, I've, I found what you said about taking documentation in pictures of performances like super interesting because... I am like that, actually. I re that's the one thing I also regret. But I never take pictures or videos of my performances, to be honest. They're live ones. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, of course, I take videos of the process to correct me. Um, but, like, everyone keeps on asking me, like, oh, why don't you put these things on Instagram? Like, la, la. And it just feels weird, to be honest. Because, like, when I'm at that moment, like, the last thing I think about is to take a picture. You know what I mean? Uh, I let other people do that for me, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> but no, like, literally, because um, to me, I I cannot, let's say, take myself out of myself and document my own self, because then I feel that that takes more part in my whole perception mm -hmm. and conception mm -hmm. rather than actually producing it, let's say. So if it's about consumption or documentation, whatever you want to call it, how can you surveil your own self? You know what I mean? Mm. It, 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 you cannot do that. You can't be your own master. Like, that's kind of weird. But then, you know, but I mean, okay, to me, when you take a picture and you put it on Instagram, it's very much about consumption. And it's very yeah. much, okay, how do I sell my body as a brand? Yeah. Kind of. So what I decided to, let's say, establish, especially with my practice, was to create this kind of testimonies. Mm -hmm. And it works better. Uh, from my viewpoint, when you know you start to talk about it, because then you give also space for people to think about it, to envision, to mm -hmm. have a picture or an idea, rather than having directly 
uh, the finished product, mm -hmm. if you call it from a very uh, marketing perspective. So, you know, you don't have to, to post pictures of performances, etc. Just mm -hmm. let people tell about what you have been doing, you oh, know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Let, just, it's, you know, we are in, uh, in an era where everything is accessible, everything is uh, instant, and uh, pictures are instant, and videos are instant, but uh, mm -hmm. what's the value of it? At, at the yeah. end? Nothing anymore. It's just an image, and that's also why I don't have any picture on my uh, digital uh, platform mm -hmm. or social media, because to me it's not about a picture, it's about the moment, it's about the, the, the experience, you yeah. know? So that's also why I only post stories, because it's this... Basically, I use um, some social media platform as, uh, let's say, ephemeral sculptures, yeah. that I call, and uh, it stays 24 hours, and then when it's gone, it's gone. Yeah. And okay, you can have these uh, highlights where you can still have, uh, let's say, a base, that is a base for documentation, mm -hmm. but uh, it's still a very short format. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm... Um, yeah, it's very much. Yeah, I'm. I'm against this. I'm against this conception of uh, bodies, images, and. Uh, I mean, I'm with you on that, but then like I take like the complete opposite route because I try to be as structured and as like posy in Instagram as possible. You know what I'm saying? Mm. But um, people believe that because I post so much mm. that I actually I like I don't share any of my personal shit actually. You know what I mean? Mm. And if I post something that I did, I post something that I did like weeks ago or something like that. That's just very like, I hate those people that kind of like try to be sleazy or something and pretend that it's about something else when it really is not. Like, babe, if you want to post your fucking ball, draw your ass, just fucking post your ass. Like, be proud of it. D don't pretend to be, make it about something else when it's not. And that's fine. Just have fun with it, you know? Uh, but no, now I'm debating. I'm going into just like bitchiness. Let's go back into this kind of like... Um, you said something else about marketing that I grabbed on, um, you know, um, and documentation it's sense surveillance is kind of like a dualism that might go hand in hand, but I actually think of as opposite, if you ask me. So what I held from all that is that the body, uh, from your book, at least you have like a very, I don't remember which point, but you took something about like nationalities as well about the nation state and about bodies and kind of like embodies embodied ways of nationalities and all that. So right now, Okay, so the legitimate states, basically, uh, that govern effectively are believed, and, and dynamically, are believed to be the ones that have, like, industrial economies as successful, basically. And those are the defining characteristics of a modern nation-state at this point, which is actually marketing, uh, you know. And going on that note, uh, like, performing nationality in this way brings out another question, Um like the way we embodied nationalities, right? And how we create the nation states around that. Because essentially nation state was created according to two things. They use solis and they use natalis, I think, which is essentially being born on that ground and having your family being born on that ground. But what does that even mean? And the notion that questions that the most is that of the refugee, actually, is what Agambe supports and I believe and I support 100%. Because like... A refugee child that is born on that, like, so, like soil doesn't have the same privileges as someone from the same nationality. And that's actually also, like, false marketing. You know what I mean? And the, the reason I'm saying this is because I connected it so much with what you told me at your studio about <laughs> how you see the gym oh, as, yeah. like, a Fordist model of marketing mm -hmm. and production, which is so true. 
you know, you're always doing this like repetitive action to create an object, which is your body in the end of the of the day. For what reason? Do you actually do it to be healthy or do you do it to be hot? Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I, it's, that's a very interesting like um, analogy right there. But before we get into even deeper waters with you, let's go into um, Anjoa Kamikaze by Mass Hysteria. Okay, so that was Mass Hysteria with Anjua Kamigazi. I was quite surprised when you sent me this album, actually, because uh, I love this type of music. And the previous song, I was like, oh, this is nice. Oh, this is cute. I was like, I was like yes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so we were talking about Fordist economic models and the repetition of all that. And a quote that I saw from your book that I loved was, my body is a material that I confront with social boundaries well-behaving and fitting within society situations. The acceptance of the self, its qualities and defaults through its restricted possibilities. The last part I loved, the idea of restricted possibilities. And then as a response to that, going back to Schiller, he says that his theme he will indeed take from the present, but his form he will borrow from a nobler time, from beyond time altogether, from the absolute unchanging unity of his being, which is actually the exact opposite of what we're just talking about now, about the gym and this whole like repetitiveness. But in a lot of your work, like speed or letter CXXV, what is, what is CXXV? CXXV. Uh, it's a letter basically that's inspired by uh, Codello de Laclo at Dungeons mm-hmm. Legends. And I basically try to make a translation of all of this letter and the feeling only through movement and body language and oh. micro gestures. Okay, cute. Right, right. But you, in both of those, at least, uh, using as examples, uh, you evoke a sort of kind of like ritualistic element, not just of art, but also of working out as parallel to that and working out art. You know what I mean? Uh, it's the process of making art, I guess, uh, rather than like the artwork itself. Uh, yeah, because this is basically the way I've been raised, the way I've mm-hmm. been educated, you know, yeah. with, a, with a timer in my hand. Okay, from that time to that time, you need to train. From that time to that time, you need to take breakfast, and then you need to do this, and then you need to do that. So I have this, um, let's say, routine and uh, reatu- r- ritualistic, uh, let's say, process, because it's also, um, yeah, it's 
it's what uh, it, it, yeah it's who i am it's uh, it's what composed me and uh, my art is my life and mm -hmm. uh, sports has been my life for so many years so it's you know this kind of uh, struggling between the structure and also trying to deconstruct and uh, decolonize yourself from yes. uh, how you have been um, educated oh, yes. also from where you come from uh, what kind of uh, social background you grew mm -hmm. up um, and how you try also to fight for you know all of this um, mechanism that you have unconsciously yes so yeah this uh, ritualistic part maybe it's also a kind of uh entry point for me mm -hmm. um to maybe not uh, get uh, lost mm -hmm. um and um yeah that's uh, yeah and the reason i brought that up is because um i feel that adds an element of durational uh, uh a durational aspect to your work and uh, that's this kind of like transcendence of repetition and i mean actually i wouldn't call it repetition i would call it more so like evolving or becoming You know what I mean? Because um, seeing how you work, actually coming to your studio and hearing you talk about your work and taking parts of older pieces and adding them to new ones, it's not repetitive. Because repetition implies the same thing over and over again. It's more so the same thing becoming and constantly changing, which I believe is what we do as humans. You know what I mean? Um, so you also told me that you were quite stressed about taking down the things in uh, marine terrain. And now you're, you're telling me that it's kind of like your art is very embodied and it's you, essentially. It's kind of like making like this embodiment par excellence. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Is there a specific process you follow through that or does it just happen naturally? Like, um, I know, I yeah, think, question like, what's your artistic process? <laughs> but in a very elegant yeah, yeah. term. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for this. <laughs> no, I think it's... Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, I was stressed and uh, I'm tired and I'm feeling also tired physically and emotionally because when you basically expose yourself, mm -hmm. um, especially when you expose yourself outside and you are also, um, you know, having to deal with um, how people relate to public spaces and how mm -hmm. people people just um, relate to art in general. And um, this idea of duration, I think, at the mm -hmm. beginning, before speed, My body of work was uh, untitled stamina. So it was all about pushing oh, physical wow, yeah. and mental boundaries. So let's say this um, mutation was a mutation that wasn't sustainable. It was a mutation that um, until last May, when mm -hmm. I experienced this uh, burnout, it was about pushing to the extreme mm -hmm. and constantly being on the edge. And uh, since this moment, I understood that, yeah, it's not a sustainable practice. And now I'm just uh, relearning how to reclaim my space time my mm -hmm. own speed and uh, my own reason and even though my art is still kind of extension of my body in some ways yeah. um the time frame is different so instead of going too fast because that's what you that's what you i mean that's what i was used to be and used to do as a as a kid especially when i was doing competition mm -hmm. when you win the first, second, and uh, third medal, uh, you don't really enjoy this no. moment where you win. You are constantly looking at the next one. And, you know, you constantly need to prove uh, that the first, second, and third one that you won uh, wasn't by mistake or just out of luck. Yeah. You know, you had to constantly um, claim this uh, legacy even though you, you had it. So it's, uh, yeah, this 
Um, it's a complicated question. It's yes, uh, it it's is. a process. <laughs> it's um, it's uh, yeah. It's um, it's uh, it's as if someone is going for a run. Mm-hmm. I also go for a run, and I need my artistic practice in order to feel happy, in order to live, and it's uh, it's part of my uh, weekly, daily routine. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I'm having uh, constantly these uh, notebooks. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, He's um, writing uh, as we speak, by the way. Instant composition. No, I feel you 100%, and actually, like, the one thing that I fucking hate in uni here in Amsterdam is this, like, um essay proposal shit mm. we do not have that in cyprus like mm. you give like um you give a plan let's say or like an out an out not an outlook what do you call, an outline of your essay like a week before you hand it in actually in cyprus it's not like oh the midterms are your essay proposals and the presentation and then after two months you write it because to be honest that's really not how i work because to me like this what we're doing right now for example is my research you know what i mean i'm always researching in a way that is actually embodied I don't really push it to be like, oh, today I will research. Let me sit down on my laptop and Google metaphysical being. Like, I don't do that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's you, you told, you gave me a reference and I'm going to look at it like at some point when I'm at home and I'm like, mm, what should I look at? I'm going through Instagram. I'm, I see a story. Where I'm like, oh, what about the thing that Leanne told me? Like, that's literally my research, which is actually not the most um, productive, I guess. But, you know, I get shit done, like, when I have to have them done. So I guess it's not really rational, but you, kind of, like, taking, let's say, a step back, it has an element of rationality in it, you know? And that brings up another question of where do you put rationality with beauty and aesthetics? Because aesthetics aren't really rational, per se. We moved beyond that point, I feel, right now in 2020. You know, at Schiller's time, yeah, it was all about form, And if you want to go on those terms, there's no better form than that of nature, you know? So we're always bound to fail if we compare ourselves only on form. But Schiller says that a rational concept of beauty, if such could be found, would therefore have to be discovered by a process of abstraction and deduced from the sheer potentialities of our sensual, rational nature. Uh, Outside of nature, she's talking about that. In a single word, then, beauty would have to be shown to a necessary condition of human being. And I feel a necessary condition of human being, the only one that is necessary, is always becoming and always changing and always evolving. So beauty, I guess, cannot be against juxtaposition or abstraction. They just go hand in hand, which is actually why I think you're, which is why I suggested to you Schiller in the first place, actually. And that's what I see in your work too, because you have the punching bag, but it's disformed. You know what I mean? Mm. So that's fucking cool. But how do you detach, let's say, between these concepts of, or, or of influence, whatever? Because yeah, okay, it's sportsmanship, which comes from your background, that's so very obvious, but then you do it in like a very, I don't know how to call it, way, abstract way, I mm. guess. You know what I mean? Mm. It's, um, it's negating and um, juxtaposing a form that's predetermined, I guess. So how is that? Is it in terms of cultural contexts, like let's say living your art piece in Azerbaijan, or is it more so like, I don't know, like your own perception of where you want to go? So is it locality affecting the detachment from the thing itself, or is it where you want to go later that detaches it from itself? Wow. Um, <laughs> poof! Boom! <laughs> Drop the bomb! Wow! 
Okay, wow, super interesting. Um, I think it's about the experience, you know, I'm always trying to understand who am, who, who am I, mm -hmm. and also in terms of uh, identity, mm -hmm. because uh, I never really felt like I was fitting in uh, most of the communities I evolved or uh, traveled through. Yeah. So let's say I'm nourished from uh, experiences, but it was like, for example, in Azerbaijan, it was very much about, okay, how can I relate my practice that is coming, that is a very personal viewpoint, mm -hmm. Uh, about uh, personal experiences, um, how can I connect with uh, the scene there or people there that I have uh, no knowledge about? So what what was the first thing was to go to um, all of the museum or archaeological museum, history museum, um, any kind of places uh, there I could gather information and uh, just you know do this uh, research like an archaeologue somehow yeah you know yeah, yeah. and uh, okay what's the uh, specificities of this uh, space what uh, are the culture that uh, are there and uh, in Azerbaijan I discovered this uh, practice that is called Zurkane mm -hmm. and Zurkane which means house of strength is basically coming from the Persian Empire mm -hmm. and it used to be this training that um, soldiers uh, we're doing and when you look at you know working out and also this practice and this practice that is extremely performative and also choreographical in a way mm -hmm. I just I just find it super interesting so I was like okay how my work can go uh, somewhere else while not doing cultural appropriation respecting the culture of uh, the place I'm evolving and invited to show something but still doing a kind of homage so it's this kind of mutation, yeah. constant. And uh, it's also about the experience of the viewers. So for example, my work in Azerbaijan, which would touch the Azerbaijani audience, mm -hmm. but it wouldn't touch it the same way uh, if I would have my pieces uh, that are still stuck there, by the way. <laughs> and I don't think I'm going to find them or see them ever again. <laughs> it's fine. Um, and uh, no, it's all about experiencing. Yeah, You know, how do you experience and... Um, the the place where you show your work is different the culture is different so how you embrace that mm -hmm. uh, as well and um it's interesting also i just want to come back on uh, your point about proposal mm -hmm. that you had to do some proposal i find it interesting because also in uh, artistic practices when you want to apply for open call or residences mm -hmm. you have to basically also make this proposal yeah and the level of rejection yeah is so high <laughs> and it's based on it's like like when Mondrian Fonda rejected me the first time, it's based on the autobiographical assumption. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, so, you know, reje rejection is constant and um, yeah, how you, you make your way through it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't deal with rejection quite well, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I usually just get drunk and get over it. No, I'm joking. Um, yeah, I mean, failure is like a vital part of it, no? That's how you grow, I feel. Um, Listen, I am that type of person, though, that if I don't fall on my face, I never learn. However, I had a friend of mine, uh, after I got really hurt by a guy, who was like to me, dude, why do you have to, like, always hurt to learn? Why can't you just actually trust yourself and learn from that? And just be like, you know what? Actually, yes, this is what I should be doing, regardless of whether it didn't hit me on the head like a fucking boomerang. Uh, but I still haven't done that, nor do I think I will at some point. Because um, no pain, no gain, bro. <laughs> Going to the gym now. Um, but you say at some point in your book, um, the mechanical repetitiveness of movements is always part of each performance I create, while maintaining the possibility to let the performance live by itself. I think that's beautiful. 
Thank first you. of all. Uh, and also, like, hermene- the hermeneutic circle is kind of like the one shape that I live my whole life by, to be honest. And that's also, like, very vital, I feel, in your work, mm. you know? And yeah. um, so how does this shape, let's say, of circular understanding come in play with the abrupt element uh, that you use? For example, uh, you have the neon colors and the tint, let's say, in a lot of your works, but you include in them something super fragile, like glass or weights from wax. I was very surprised to be honest when I found out that it's wax, because I actually thought it was like, I don't know, clay or rock or something, you know what I mean, uh, heavy, but it's like wax. So if this repetitiveness, let's say, is a vital part, where does the placement of the body fall in that circle? If it's like the two um, ends is on the one hand fragility and on the other hand, like, you know what I mean? Um, heaviness, if you can call it that. Mm. It's interesting. No, I think the, let's say, displacement of body is embodied by um, the, the work, the artwork in itself, because it's at the same time, you know, very fragile, but it's mostly glass that, can, that are merged with, uh, for example, stamina, mm-hmm. this exhibition uh, from 2017. It's glass merged with steel, so it's playing with, yeah. you know, this uh, duality and dualism between a fragile and something that is heavy, something that is a bit... Uh, um, heavy, rough. So it's. Um, I'm trying to to not have my personal body physically present. Mm-hmm. I mean, the body is present during the process, and it's basically my physical body that shaped the sculpture. But then I consider the sculpture as performer mm-hmm. uh, in themselves, and uh, I want them to continue to ev- to evolve. And then the um, new let's say, direction I'm starting to take in my work is that I want the sculpture to be ephemeral. Mm-hmm. So the sculpture, I want them to um, disappear or decay or die. Mm-hmm. And this idea of a body that ceases to be visible is uh, something that I'm obsessed with. You know, what yeah. are the leftovers? You know, it's like, well, you go to the gym. Okay, cool. So you have a great body, but then when you are dead, what's, what's next? What, yeah. You know, what stays? Yeah, or yeah, when yeah. you leave the gym, what stays? Only the machine stays mm-hmm. only the architecture stays only you know the something that is solid something that is more or less less organic so yeah. what if you know when you look at a sculpture in general it's always this huge uh, concrete very phallic monolith and uh, when you look at uh, sculpture in general it's very much uh, actually yeah very masculine yeah so you know what if you transform this uh huge and heavy object into something that, you know, slightly and slowly um, disappear. Yeah. That's the direction I want to take. What's really funny is, like, you say that, but, like, a lot of times it's kind of like nature came into your, like, artwork, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you told, you were telling me this story about uh, those sculptures that they were, like, uh, red. I don't remember where they were. Them on your um, uh, website mm-hmm. that kind of like it flooded, so then the sculpture sort of like moving around the space mm-hmm. at some point, mm-hmm. or like at Marine Train, for example. Now that they're like at the bottom of the ocean, or that you oh, know, yeah. I mean? people would like come and like uh, with the punching bag. So it's kind of like you have this like external element that plays with the fragility of it, of something that isn't really that fragile in itself, and then making it fragile. So there's all this kind of like power hierarchy between like the elements as well that I find super super nice. But let's go into a song for now that I chose, which is I Wanna Be Adored by the Stone Roses.
So, that was I Wanna Be Adored by the Stone Roses, lovely band. Stone Roses goes, like, very well with, uh, <laughs> you know, this juxtaposition that we were talking about. So, to go into our last segment, let's say, I will start with one of your quotes that you use. The link I would like to make with this last paragraph is the ideas of body and language as the main topics of this thesis. But what if the image of the body isn't shown? Is it less powerful? Does the body need to be present to speak about its incarnation? What are the strategies needed to incarnate and what is no longer visible? So lastly, let's go back to your beginning as an artist. And what are some of your most memorable performances, artworks or moments or lessons you got from your uh, body of work or your practice? doesn't have to be memorable per se, just anything you want to share, you know? I think, I think for me the one of the one of the moments I maybe I prefer the most was when I was in the process of uh, doing glass blowing. Mm -hmm. I was working with this uh, glass blower uh, Marie de Bruyne that uh, basically produced most of my uh, glass pieces, mm -hmm. and uh, just materializing a conversation. You know, materializing a breathing, materializing a physical um, activity yeah. through something that is so fragile, but at the same time um, transparent, that is glass. And the way that I used it was one of the most memorable uh, experience I had in my, uh, in my practice. It's nice. how you, yeah, how you metaphorically uh, embodied, um, you know, an exchange, mm -hmm. a conversation, a moment, an experience. Yeah, it was beautiful. Oh my god, I, I, like, glass blowing is like, I don't know. I went to the Murano factory, mm -hmm. like in uh, Venice with my family. Oh, it was beautiful. I, I really love fucking Murano in general, glass blowing, but I think I would fuck it up so much, you know? But it's really interesting, like seeing something so fragile, the way it's being created. Like, for example, um, making, like, I don't know, like, you know what I mean? Like blowing it up more, uh, more or less and making like a huge sphere mm -hmm. is like really mesmerizing to see. But on a more general note, if we go from that, uh, with the fragmentations of your work, let's say, right? Taking each part um, that we just analyzed right now. Ephemerality, let's say, um, virility, gender, whatever, right? How would you say your work needs to be present from this point onwards, if it does? Um, if it is, let's say, body in transition, uh, which I believe that's how you treat it, how will its status change your own? And then how would you want to push it further if you do want to do that or not? Consciously, I mean. I think more and more, you know, the, my personal body was present uh, a lot. And mm -hmm. more and more, I'm trying to detach uh, my body from my work. Mm -hmm. um, Especially because I don't want that my body is becoming my uh, my art, or that my body is becoming the the medium mm -hmm. uh, per se. Um, what let's say the direction I would like to take is that I would like to arrive uh, and uh, set up an exhibition, and when you are at the end of the exhibition, there is nothing anymore. Everything has disappeared, oh, but everything has disappeared by itself. So that's kind of yeah the goal I I'm, love I'm having now. Nice, that's super cool, yeah. Like, <laughs> like you know, like a lot of side trans festivals do this. Well, Burning Man is like the most, but mm -hmm. fuck Burning Man. 
But like Boom, for example, you know what I mean? They change their uh, installations every year. Mm. Actually, so it is like ephemeral sculptures, actually, in the end. Um, one of the quotes that Schiller said that I feel uh, corresponds a lot uh, to another part of your book, if you want to take time with this from a fragmentary thing, it is in the modest sanctuary of your heart that you must rear victorious truth and project it out of yourself in the form of beauty so that not only thought can pay homage, but sense too, and in this way lay loving hold on its own appearance. So his appearance, let's say, that he's talking about, I saw a lot in there, like, um, graphic punctuation that you created for your performances. And it's like a music score, let's say, uh, to navigate your body's lyricality, if you want to go through that. And then you created this one thing that I found super interesting about the pre-time, now, and the post-time, which I was like, come on, Heidegger. <laughs> you know? So, to wrap up, tell me a little bit about your concept of time then. If um, we want to go into that whole realm as the parting gift to our listeners, um, what would the future hold for you on a more practical note? And do you have any projects that you'd like to share with us? I think uh, time should be always uh, be related with, uh, with space in, uh, in general. And um, yeah, speed is, uh, let's say, this uh, new direction I'm taking, this new body of work. So it's about, yeah, reclaiming your personal and uh, collective uh, rhythm and time frame and space time. And um, I just would like to, to say that what I understood lately is that any structure isn't stable. Mm-hmm. This is a fact. Preach, preach. So, thank you. <laughs> so let's say the, the next steps would be to first um, take more time for myself to heal. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially from the burnout, also from the this post-exhibition time. Mm-hmm. But as well, I would like to initiate, um, let's say, more uh, collaboration in the future, but uh, with a completely different uh, reason. Let's say mm-hmm. I dropped the chronometer I had for 28 years, so this is my time to discover. Nice. <laughs> Super cool. Very nice to hear. Um, yeah, if I would, like... I don't know, let you go with one uh, thing, is like Holderlin's uh, concept of uh, river and time, um, where he basically says that you cannot step in the same river twice, which is like, yes, that's time for me. Yes. Very Heideggerian and like my whole life philosophy. It's this like, he has this like seven hour long fucking like documentary of like literally five philosophers sitting in a boat in a river just talking about philosophy. Literally, it's like horrible, but it's also like, beautiful you know and and just to wrap up and with two last quotes one from schiller and the last one from you so schiller says that the highest ideal of beauty is therefore to be sought in the most perfect possible union an equilibrium of reality and of form this equilibrium though remains to be no more than a simple idea that can never fully be realized in actuality and then aurelian answers the performance is over. Staging and incarnate the missing bodies when the body is no longer present. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, baby, for the interview. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Always, Thank always you for having you. me. Of course, darling. And let's close now with um, Patenipa by Charlotte Adi... I cannot pronounce her Odigéry. last name. Odigéry. Odigéry. Thank you, baby. Thank you.
Continue to need 